Good morning, Mission Fellowship. How are we all doing out there? Good. Would you stand with me, and would you grab your Bibles? We usually only do two readings at the beginning of service, but today we're going to do three, because why not drink in more of the Word of God? Amen? Amen. So why don't you open your Bibles to Romans 14 with me, and you're going to get a quick mini-sermon, and then we'll get into the rest of the liturgy. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What I see before me is a group of people who are existing in a world that is very tense right now. Amen? But here's what I see. I see men and women wearing masks who are doing it because they love the Lord. And I see men and women who are not wearing masks, and they're doing it because they love the Lord. And so what I see is a diversified church with the core common unity of the gospel. Amen? And so anyone who's visiting today or anyone who's looking online, this is the core unity of the gospel that draws us together. And so if you're wearing a mask, I am thankful that you're here, and I welcome you. If you're not wearing a mask, I am thankful that you're here, and I welcome you. And now we can proceed forward in the love of one another and the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lift our eyes up to you. We pray that our hearts and minds would be set on your lordship. You rule all things. You are the creator of all things. Nothing has come into being that isn't from you. You are not surprised by anything that happens. You are never confused. All things are clear to you. And as the creator, you alone are the lawgiver. Only you have the right to divide between right and wrong. Your standards see beyond earthly, temporary evaluations. And you have told us what is good for the sake of our eternal rest in you. And you have told us what is evil for the sake of our eternal safety in you. As the creator and lawgiver, you are the only worthy judge. You are just in your judgments, and no one can make an argument in your presence. Father, we are not like you. Have mercy on us. There is nothing we can say we have created. Everything we have, every single breath, comes from you. Have mercy on us. We are surprised by things, and we do get confused. Have mercy on us. And for making ourselves the judge even one time, we have committed idolatry against you, the true and living God. And we make ourselves worthy of being put away from you for eternity. Have mercy on us. So we confess our great need, our unfathomable need for your forgiveness a forgiveness so great that we could never earn it. Lord, you are the Lord of all of us, and regardless of any differences we have, your lordship in our life is so overwhelming that nothing can separate what you have bound together. You have bound this church together, and we are not free to divide it. So help us, God, when we are faced with challenges. Help us when our differences seem large, Lord, stop the enemy from deceiving us into thinking that these minuscule differences could ever blot out the universe-sized communion that we share with each other and with you. 
So we commit to showing one another the same charity that you have shown us in your son. We pray these same things for many other local churches that strive toward the goal of proclaiming your gospel to the nations. Lord, we pray for Redemption Church in Portland and their pastor, Virgil Brown, and the elders there, and for Bethany Baptist and their pastor, Trevor Binkley, and their elders. We pray that their congregations would be united under the banner of your gospel and that they would fight to not let any other banner fly over their gathering. Lord, we pray for the healthcare workers and firefighters across our state and country who are facing challenges. Chaos is the order of this world, so we ask that you would break in with your good order to set things right. We ask for healing. We ask for treatments to prevent hospitalizations. We ask for rain. We ask for relief. But we ask for your comfort, not the comfort of the world. We ask above all these things that godliness would increase in our lives as we strive and fight to stay in your will, setting our hope on you. Use your word this morning, delivered through Hans, to set our hearts and minds on your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, all of you, for being in good voice this morning. It's encouraging to hear you praise the Lord. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10, and we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to study the Word of God. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. History is littered with the memory of religious leaders who illustrate well the phrase, flash in the pan. Men and women who, on the outside and even judging by the scope of their influence, were extremely charismatic individuals. And yet, as time went on in their ministry, their underlying lack of character and faithfulness to the truth of the ministry they proclaimed was shown to be empty and hypocritical. And you might say, Hans, how do you know you're not one of those? And I would say, only time will tell, unfortunately, right? All of us are human. So please don't hear any self-righteousness in that statement. The reality is, is history is littered with these kinds of leaders. And we can look as far back as Jesus' day, where he proclaimed that many would come in his name, even performing signs and wonders, and possibly even confusing and dragging away those who proclaimed to be his disciples. So this shouldn't be a shock to us. We can look throughout the history of the church and find groups like the Marcionites, or the Montanists, or the Manicheans. I don't know why they always start with an M, but we can look at those. All these were known for their ascetic lifestyle in which they practiced extreme self-denial, even going against some of what Scripture says, as we'll see. A later example was the Shakers in the late 1700s. They were so focused on the return of Christ that they wrongly forbade marriage and viewed sexuality as only fleshly and earthly. Shockingly, they have all but died out because they had no offspring to carry on their faith. Now, we can even look to the last 40 years, and especially the last five, amen? Any of you who've been paying attention to Christendom, especially in the States, uh, left and right, it seems, we are seeing men who, on the outside, have bright smiles and draw huge crowds with their charisma and their niceness and their books and their social media influence and their podcasts, and yet behind the scenes are found to be ravenous wolves fleecing and abusing the flock. Many of you are probably listening to the most popular religious podcast uh, on Spotify right now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and hearing the story of a similar situation there. And yet, the lead pastor of that situation is running a church of almost 2,000 people, yet again, doing the same things, yet again. A good mentor and pastor friend of mine at the time, who fell into adultery and refused to repent, is now being embraced by yet another church being, quote-unquote, restored without any true repentance. Over and over, you're seeing this in the church. These kind of leaders are found to be literally fulfilling the characterizations that Paul wrote to Timothy 2,000 years ago about wolves among the flock. Now, all of these people, friends, are talented, more talented than me, smarter, more smarter than me. <laughs> See how I threw that in there for you? The quick ones up here caught it fast, Right? The reality is, is that these folks are charismatic, and yet, 
History is littered with flash-in-the-pan leaders who cause a bright spark with their fake religious mask but die out into sin and destruction. Now, praise God, he can use those situations. And in many of those situations, in many of those ministries, people are saved, they're brought to the truth, and then they're healed in other churches after the destruction comes. But perhaps this is why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul spends so much time in his first letter to his protege, Timothy, talking about the qualities of good leadership within the household of God. Chapter 2, as we saw, was a high-level view of God's good order within the local church. In chapter 3, Paul moved on to speak directly to the qualifications of the leaders, known as the elders and the deacons. And remember that what Paul insisted on was not the charisma or ability or talents or height of the leaders. That's another joke for you. Six foot ten, that's why I said that. Okay? But the character. Then, in the last portion of chapter 3, Paul characterizes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. That truth is the gospel of Jesus' life, ministry, atoning death, ascension, and enthronement. And I love that last week, Nick pointed out that it's the character of the church, like the character of the leaders, the godliness within, that is evidenced without, that will endear people to the God we follow. It's character. It's not how nice we are. It's not how flashy we are. It's not how many service projects we do. It's the character, because character is what speaks of God's redeeming power. You can make anybody do a service project. You can't make everybody be redeemed in character. And now in our text this morning, Paul passes, or excuse me, pauses, and seems to jump into a new topic. He pauses and seems to jump into chapter 4, and it seems like it's not connected, but in reality, he is still flowing from the same train of thought. You see, as we noted in chapter 1, especially verses 3 through 7 and 18 through 20, it seems that there were men in the church at Ephesus that were not men of character. And yet, because of their charisma or their fancy teaching, we're not exactly sure, they were drawing people away from the local church and away from the pastoring of Timothy and Paul to focus on errant doctrine and what we'll find is what's called false asceticism, which we'll define further in a moment. And so what Paul will do in our text this morning is he's going to provide a contrast between the false asceticism of these leaders, errant doctrine, and the true doctrine and good character and godliness of what Paul is calling Timothy to be in their midst. It's going to be a contrast, and this is why I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Contrast of False Asceticism and True Godliness. The Contrast of False Asceticism and True Godliness. And again, if you don't know what asceticism means, don't try and say it five times fast because it's hard to say, but if you don't know what it means, we'll define it in just a moment. Now, friends, this is not just an academic discussion. I worry that we can make it that. But we will be in error if we take it as such. To think about these situations out there, it actually plays right here. Because the core topic that we've been looking at since chapter 2 is, it matters who you follow and why you follow them. It matters who you follow and why you follow them. And friends, this isn't just meaning religious leaders or church leaders. That is there too. But do you realize you follow other people in terms of spiritual discipleship. It might be your best friend. It might be your grandmother. It might be your dad. It matters who you follow and why you follow them. And so this text before us today was useful for the local church of Ephesus and Timothy, and it's useful for us today to have one more tool to wisely discern whom we are to follow in the faith. Because let's be honest, there's lots of people raising their hand for you to follow them. So let's begin this morning by taking a look at our text from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Paul never minced words, did he? who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen? What we see first is the source of false doctrine. The source of false doctrine. Let's unpack this. Uh, piece by piece, these first two verses here. Paul begins this section with an emphasis of inspiration regarding what he is about to say. He uses the phrase, the Spirit expressly says. He could be getting this from some of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels or from a circulating church creed, but we don't truly know if Paul is meaning to quote something already known by the church or if he is wishing to put emphasis behind something that he has uh, been given in a vision or a word from God. Either way, his point is for Timothy and us to perk up, to pay attention, and to listen, because this is the Spirit speaking. The Spirit expressly or distinctly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. In a way, Paul is being encouraging here. He's saying to Timothy this idea, and friends, I got to tell you, this has been so gracious and and important for me when I go to older saints who've been in the ministry for many years, and and I explain to them the the brokenness in the church or the heartache in the church, and they kind of go, oh yeah, you're so naive. Yeah, that's that's pretty much pastoring. Your church isn't bad, right? (laughs) But I go, but no, really, there's stuff going on. And then they go, yeah, just wait till you hit year 30 or year 40. You'll be all right, right? He's trying to encourage Timothy with this fact. He's saying this this idea that people will leave the faith, it's not new. It's not new. And if that shocks you, if you're like, oh no, this other person left the faith, friends, you got a lot more years to go where many more people will leave the faith. We need to endure even in the midst of that. And this phrase, later times, is often misused in many churches as an eschatological preface speaking to the days prior to Christ's second return, as if Paul is writing to Timothy only about, you know, 2021, right before Jesus comes back. But that is incorrect, if you've heard that before. Paul was not speaking of later days out there in the future. Rather, he was speaking of the days in which he and Timothy were living. We know this because it was typical apostolic teaching that the days after Christ's death and resurrection, moving forward until the second coming, in other words, Paul's day and our day, are the later days or last days of history. You can go and look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost on your own as an example where he explicitly states that the last days spoken of by the prophet Joel were being fulfilled right then in Acts. And Paul uses similar wording in his second letter to Timothy. He says this in his second letter. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty And so, friends, every generation from Paul until now, when there's a pandemic or an earthquake or a heat dome, they go, it must be the last days, see? And it could be. I mean, would any of us be sorely disappointed if Jesus returned tomorrow? Absolutely not. Amen? But we've looked at that and said, oh, this must be the last days. He's saying, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And we might say, man, he nailed it. He's talking about Salem. Well, really Portland, but Salem in 2021, right? No offense to all my Portland neighbors. He's talking about Salem in 2021, isn't he? Well, no. Notice what he says and notice the tense. Avoid such people. Is that present or future? He's saying, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. And so if you're a person who says, we're in the last days, Paul and Peter would go, yeah, amen, you are. So were we. 
And so we can't take it as just this eschatological preface. We have to take it as what it is, which is Paul telling Timothy, brother, this will happen in the church. It's, it's what's happening in the last days. And so in 1 Timothy, Paul was basically telling Timothy that was, this was a normal thing, that people were leaving the faith. And this is part of the natural life of the local church. And Jesus even gave us this understanding when he spoke in parables. And he said of his people that they were like a wheat field in which there were true fruitful disciples illustrated by wheat. And there were those that might look like disciples that internally were actually not and had never been converted. He was illustrating these people by the tares or weeds that outwardly look like wheat, but internally are actually poisonous. And John Calvin spoke of this idea when he said that within any local church, there is both a visible and an invisible church. The one you see outwardly is the visible church, which is the whole gathering of anyone who proclaims to be a Christ follower. And the one that only God can see because he sees the true nature of their hearts is the invisible church, the true church. But what, it was, uh, what was it that was drawing these folks away from the faith? Paul says that they were devoting themselves to the teachings of demons. Friends, there are either the teachings of God or the teachings of demons. There is no in-between. There are things that are gray and secondary issues, absolutely, but when you are listening, recognize that you're going to be pulled towards Christ or away from Christ. You're not going to get stuck sitting there. Now, in Acts 2, the people of God are characterized by devoting themselves to one another and the apostles' doctrine. But here, these individuals are instead devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And we immediately think there must be one of those stars on the ground and cats being sacrificed and, oh man, this must be bad. No, friends, these were people who would say, like you and I, we're Christ followers. We're Christ followers. And yet, at the core level, they were devoting themselves, not even just hearing, but devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The semantic range of this word deceitful means seducing or deceiving or misleading. So you can either be led by Christ or you can be misled by deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so we must understand that these teachers of false doctrine were not externally obvious in their deceit. They didn't walk in, as I've said before, with bright red horns on their head or a pitchfork. They looked on the outside like they were leading in a direction that brought about devotion and worship, but they were leading toward worship of something other than Christ, reliance upon something other than Christ. In chapter 2 and in another verse here in chapter 4, Paul will hearken back to the creation account, and he will speak to God's position and character of creator and provider. And so in this context along with the image of these deceiving leaders, we should be brought back to think of the ultimate deceiver, the one in the garden, the adversary of God himself, who came to Eve and deceived her to give her the sense that she was in the truth, but ultimately leading to destruction. Now, this is why Christ calls the adversary the father of lies and says there is no truth in him. Ultimately, False teaching arises from him and him alone. And if we are not careful, we can easily buy into his lies and deception. Why? Because, friends, so often he makes his lies so appealing, doesn't he? And they make sense to us because we are stuck in these fleshly vessels and they're attractive to us. Just recall the garden for a second. His lies made logical sense to Eve. So when I hear Christians debating about logic, I always crack up because I go, yeah, Eve was like that too. Oh, that looks good. It must be good to the taste. It's not too bad to touch. Hey, it's really yummy. It's logical. He's not pictured as, a gro as grotesque, being that he is easily seen, but rather... In the New Testament, he's spoken of as an angel of light that is beautiful and attractive to humanity. One of the best lies that he ever did was he tricked the Warner Brothers to draw the cartoons that he would be obvious. 
And so many Christians think, well, this isn't obviously Satan, so it must not be a deceitful lie or a demon. And this is why he often draws in humans within the church to be agents operating on his behalf. Notice that it says here in 1 Timothy 4 that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And it says through the medium of the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is people within the church, often leaders. So Satan then uses humans within the local church as agents of his errant doctrine and deception to try and draw others away. This is not a kind of demonic possession that is obvious where their head's spinning around and they're vomiting everywhere, right? This is rather an oppression where the person involved has been deceived by bad doctrine and then, in order to stay founded in that false teaching... They have had to dismiss and disregard good doctrine from the true word of God to the point where their conscience has been seared. Friends, this is what you experience when you go to a brother and you open up your Bible and it says right there, do not do X, it is sin. And yet, brothers and sisters in the church go, nah, it's all right. I mean, this must have been cultural back in the day. Guys, that's a seared conscience that is unable to take in the word of God. They have to dismiss and disregard good doctrine from the true word of God to the point where their conscience has been seared. The picture here is that, like the cauterizing of a wound, the nerves are deadened, so much so that the conscience is no longer working as God intended. And the person is existing in a state of lying to themselves. Unfortunately, in my time of being a pastor, I've seen this so many times. A brother or a sister come in and sit down and someone's trying to get them to repent and they just look at them as if they've got bugs crawling out of their ears. Why would I repent of that activity? I am justified, they say. Friends, be careful when that's the first phrase out of your mouth. Because if you can't say, Christ has justified me in this, then you're not justified at all. There is active hypocrisy between the God these folks say they serve and the actions they are taking that are in direct contradiction to his commands. Paul's point is that this could be any of us within the local church. Friends, this could be me. This could be you. This could be you listening or watching online. This could be any of us. And so rather than pointing the finger and saying, be careful of all of them or those people out there, friends, it is wise for every one of us to say, who should we be careful of? It's usually the person right in front of you who has two thumbs and can go like this. This guy. It's you. It's me. We are the ones that can bring destruction to the church. Don't worry about the world. The world's going to be the world. We are the ones that can be agents of these deceitful spirits. And so just as Paul was saying, we must be alert, and it's up to each of us to search out Scripture to make sure that what is being taught from the pulpit and from each one of us to one another is based on the properly interpreted word of God and nothing else. One of the things I'm so thankful for in this church is that to a great degree, we have gotten rid of phrases like, the other day I was praying and God told me. God gave me a word for you. How do you know? Well, because I just, I know, I feel it. Was it a word in here that was really impressed upon your heart to give to somebody else? Or was it just you in your own mind? Hans, you're, you're stopping the Spirit from moving. No, friends, the Spirit is what interpreted or inspired and illuminated the Word of God. And so we can stand firmly founded on good doctrine because of the Word of God and nothing else. The Word interpreted through proper grammatical and historical and canonical filters. We must be alert to twisted teaching. Friend, do you know 
that this is a part of your responsibility as a Christian and a congregant of this church. Do you read the Word of God? Do you memorize the Word of God? Do you study the Word of God? Ask questions about the Word of God so that you can be alert. We need to be alert. Well, luckily, Paul gives us some marks of this false doctrine and false teaching and this false asceticism that flows from errant doctrine to look out for. Let's go ahead and reread verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Verses 3 through 5, what we see is the marks of false doctrine. He gave us the source of false doctrine, and now he gives us the marks of false doctrine. And Paul focuses on two specific items that were creeping in the church. If you want to see more of the picture, read through all of 1 Timothy in one big move, and then also do 2 Timothy. In fact, that's a great idea for you to do while we're in 1 Timothy. It will help you understand the context more. In focusing on these two specific items, he's illustrating the asceticism that is being promoted in the false doctrine of these errant leaders. Now, asceticism is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. That's what asceticism means. Let me say that again. It's severe self-discipline, severe self-discipline, and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. That's just the Webster's Dictionary definition. And this was a growing problem for the church because of the early seeds of what would become Gnosticism or the ascetic arm of Gnosticism. There was also a hedonistic arm that said, do whatever you want, it's no big deal, because the spiritual is different from the physical. But this Gnosticism, this especially ascetic Gnosticism, would come within a few decades from this point in time. And so this is proto-Gnosticism, if you will. Paul would deal with this in other churches he founded, such as in our reading from Colossians, As we heard earlier, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. In that letter, as you heard, he called this kind of asceticism self-made religion. Colossians 2.23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These hypocritical leaders were specifically forbidding marriage and calling for self-imposed celibacy and requiring abstinence from foods, most likely meat. If we put the various breadcrumbs together from 1 and 2 Timothy, we see the likelihood that these false leaders led by Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus were insisting that their resurrection had already happened And that the church was existing within the new age where procreation was not necessary and where the Garden of Eden was restored to a point that man should only eat vegetables and not meat. Now, let me just say this so that we get it off the table. If you are a vegetarian or a vegan or you cut out carbs or whatever for your health, there's value in that. Okay? So don't feel super condemned if you're a person who's done that. If it's for your health and your doctor has said, great, I don't think God is upset with you. If you're commanding other people to do it, to be as holy as you, now we have a problem. Likewise, if you're a meat eater and you're like, well, if you're not a carnivore like me, you must not be holy because I receive everything with thanks. You're also in sin. Stop it. Okay? Now, some of these things are still prominent in certain forms of self-proclaimed Christianity and in the lives of some who try to promote their lifestyle as more holy than that of other believers. The call for a vow of celibacy, the implementation of a vegetarian lifestyle alone, and friends, that is against Scripture. There is no two ways about it. These things 
are not holier. But then you might say, well, Hans, I don't really see these that often. Well, there's other ways that this call for asceticism happens within the church. The call for a complete removal of alcohol. The statement that certain music or movies or art or dancing is indulgent and needs to be removed if one wants to truly be a serious Christian. You might say, Hans, are you, are you arguing for drunkenness and being able to watch X-rated movies? Absolutely not, and don't twist my words into that. What I am saying is that I've met so many Christians who, I only watch G-rated movies. Do you watch PG? I don't ever have any wine. Do you? Friends, it's the same thing. Self-made asceticism. All of these have at their core two parts that will help us see the mark of false doctrine. First is a false asceticism in which we have either added or subtracted from God's commands. Anytime we add or subtract and say, my rules are more holy, we're in false asceticism. We even see this today, don't we? As people are adding and subtracting from the commands of God to define what makes a true Christian. And it's not biblical, it's extra biblical. I wonder if any of us in this room have added or subtracted from God's commands or good order. What might that be in your life? And I'm going to just go ahead and do it because it's the giant elephant in the room. Guys, this is even with masks. Friends, if you are standing on scientific principles and medical principles and saying this is love because it helps keep people from getting sick, you are right. And that's good. And if you are standing on a principle that you want to promote the sovereignty of God and then at the end of the day, death comes when God calls it or whatever principle you're standing on for not wearing a mask, you know what? That's valid. Friends, stand firmly in what you want to do to serve the Lord on this topic. I love you if you want to wear masks and you're frustrated with me that I'm not wearing a mask. And I love you if you're not wearing a mask. Please, as we read from Romans 14, don't turn it into an issue where you say those that wear masks are true Christians or those that don't wear masks are true Christians. It's a form of adding or subtracting to God's commands. Thank you for the amen. Appreciate that. <laughs> Love one another. Love one another. The second mark, not just false asceticism, is a refusal, a denial, or a twisting of the created order in God's declaration of what is good or what is evil. We see this especially in the area of sexuality and gender right now, don't we? A, sta a statement that says, eh, God didn't really know what he was doing. God's design was not correct. And so the social mob will define a new, better creation. Friends, these are connected in that both act in the image of our first mother and our first father deciding for ourselves what is good and what is evil, rather than submit to God's will and judgment. But Paul goes on and says that if God has created it, called it good, and then called for us to be thankful in our own receipt of these created things, then we need to submit to that judgment. Are you guys with me, or are you still thinking about my comment on masks? You with me? Amen? All right. Paul goes on to say that if God has created it, called it good, and called for us to be thankful in our receipt of these created things, then we need to submit to that judgment. In so doing, Paul is again focusing on the creation account, and specifically the ideas that come from chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. So pause with me in the train of thought we're going through in 1 Timothy, and come back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's put a pause on that current train of thought and go through this biblical theology that helps us understand why Paul is making this an issue and why he is pointing back to the creation account. Genesis 1, verses 27 through 31. 
Give me an amen if you're there. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Friends, what here in this passage does God declare as good? Sexual intimacy in marriage for the purpose of procreation and all that he has provided for food. Does that mean if you're single that you're not doing something good? No, give thanks for your time being single that you can serve the Lord without having divided attention. If you're married, give thanks for the Lord that you're married and you get to disciple one another and sanctify one another. Amen? But definitely don't say that God is not for marriage or sexuality in marriage. It makes me so sad when I run into Christian couples who are not able to have a good sexual marriage because one or both are still carrying around condemnation as if God was grossed out when humans started having sex. God created it. It's okay. God declares both good. But let's use this then to show how Scripture can be twisted when taken out of context. With this text alone, you might say, and I've heard this actually to me, uh, given to me many times before, that this was only vegetables and plants at this point. We were never intended for anything else. And to a certain extent, you would be right. But then at the conclusion of the flood, God saw fit to add animals to food. Go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you. So there's again saying that it's good to be married and be, be fruitful and multiply in that covenant. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay? But then you might say, but what about all the ceremonial food purity laws of the Jews? Are we not to keep those? And friends, this is where we must remember God's statement to Peter through a vision in Acts, in Acts 10, in which Peter was told to rise, kill, and eat all manner of clean and unclean animals. And when Peter refused because he was practicing what he thought was true, and for a moment operated in self-made religion, false asceticism, because God told him differently. This is what God said in Acts 10, 15. The voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. God was using this change in his direction regarding food to declare to Peter that the purpose of the food laws to separate God's people from the pagan nations was no longer needed because the gospel had now come to all nations, Jew and Gentile. It was no longer a matter of food. And so later, like we heard in Romans 14, when the church stood up and said, no, there are certain foods that you can't eat, Paul said to them, guys, this isn't the issue anymore. The issue is the gospel. The issue is love. And so food and marriage and sexual intimacy and procreation that is to come from it are good things. They are good because God first declared them to be good. And secondly, because when we partake of them, they are opportunities to give thanks to God for his amazing provision, his creativity in creation, and his love for us to give us good gifts within and beyond these two items. Amen? God is a benevolent Father who gives us good gifts. Amen? Amen? Friends, are we a church that has a culture of individuals and a corporate culture that live lives of thankfulness for the good things that God has given us? Do we have that culture? Do you have it in your home? Are you a parent that constantly wonders why your children are not more thankful and then you realize 
Actually, I don't know that I've ever modeled thankfulness for them because I just chow down my food every night because eh, it's not a big deal. That's religious to do, give thanks before meals. Or do you thank the Lord for what he has bountifully provided? Do you thank the Lord for your home, for your car? As Seth spoke earlier, for the ability to come in to a church building and worship without people beating down the door to kill us. Are you thankful for these things? Perhaps you might be a person who's become deadened and spoiled in a constant thankless expectation that life should be our oyster and that God owes us. Does that describe you? If it does, perhaps this week, especially in light of all that is so wrong in the world, we should focus on prayers of thanksgiving to God for the good he has provided. Friends, there is a heat dome. There are people dying. People are sick. Afghanistan is falling. Christians are dying. How many is that? Let me see if I can have as many things that I'm thankful for. Salvation. Every one of you. Right there. It's like 130 to 5, right? In fact, that's what we do as elders when we pray for every single one of you, is we give thanks to God for you. Are we a church that has a culture of thankfulness? This week, rather than worrying about who here today has a mask on or doesn't, what if you were to grab the church directory and pray in thanksgiving for every person and for where God has placed them in your life? We need to be a church culture of thankfulness for what God has provided. Now, I give you this quick biblical theology lesson. You might say, well, we went off on a trail there. I did that intentionally because I want to give you an example of how quickly one can be taken off course if they don't know their Bible. Right there, we practice what's called canonical context. We looked at a theme across the Bible. A charismatic, seemingly knowledgeable leader takes one of these verses out of context or twists it, and what do you have? Deceptive doctrine that will lead you astray. Friend, how well do you know your Bible? If you're just a brand new Christian, just keep going. This question isn't for you. For those of you that have been Christians for many years, how well do you know your Bible? Have you read it all the way through? Or are you like I was for the first 10 or 15 years of my Christianity, and I'd read Philippians about 300 times, but books like Deuteronomy and especially Chronicles, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> right? All those Bagats, my goodness, that's not inspired. Yes, it is. Have you read all the way through? If not, friends, just read it. Don't worry about understanding it. Just read it. Meditate on it. Read great big swaths of it, and the Lord will use it. I think often when I say, guys, do you study your Bible? You're like, oh, man, i got to build the library wing of my house, and then i got to get all those, uh, those commentaries, and i got to go buy the biggest package of Lagos possible, and i got to go to seminary. Oh, man, I'm letting Hans down. No, you're not. Do you read your Bible? Just read it. And then guess what? When you're done, what do you do? Read it again. Hans, I've already read 1 Timothy one time. Read it 300 more times. Just read it and read it and read it. Don't worry about understanding it the first time through or the 20th time through or the 30th time through. Just read it. Meditate on it. Read great big swaths of it. Let's promote a culture in this church of reading and studying with one another and asking questions and seeking guidance all in humility that we are not the expert. We are not the word of God. The word of God is. Amen? So the marks of false doctrine, getting back to our idea of 1 Timothy, the marks of false doctrine are false asceticism, additions or subtractions to God's commands, and a refusal, denial, or twisting of the created order and God's declaration of what is good or what is evil. And at the heart of both, friends, is a lack of submission to God's word and a prideful spirit of determining for ourselves what is good and evil in spite of what God's word declares. To do so will harden our heart, sear our conscience, increase our hypocrisy, and cause us to be an agent of deception among God's people in the service of God's adversary. Important truths for us to understand and take seriously this morning. Brothers, what scriptural 
or biblical principle are you dismissing? Brothers and sisters, what new additional piece of righteousness have you possibly added to God's word? We need to examine ourselves so we don't contribute to false doctrine in the church. Amen? Amen? Back in 1 Timothy, Paul then tells Timothy the rest of the matter. Go ahead and look back at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Here we see the contrast of the good servant of Christ. We've just talked about the source of false doctrine, the marks of false doctrine, and even the teachers of false doctrine, the servants of that deceitful spirit. But here we have the contrast of the good servant of Christ. You will most likely get a refresher of these verses next week as they directly tie into verses 11 through 16, and maybe even verses 1 through 2 in chapter 5, but I include them here because of the very pointed comparison that Paul is trying to make. You see, he's comparing two different types of self-discipline. On the one hand, you have these false and hypocritical leaders who are insisting on a form of self-discipline that is really self-denial, and they are promoting their way as holy and righteous. But then Paul calls Timothy to call out these false forms of self-made religion and false doctrine, and instead, Paul calls Timothy to a different form of self-discipline. Notice that in the English, he uses the words trained, train, and training. But we have to break those down a bit. The first word trained in verse 6 is actually a word that is different from the other two in the Greek, even though it seems similar in the English. The first word train right there, being trained in the words of the faith, he says, This word means to be educated or, in a more metaphorical sense, to be nourished. Now, we don't see it immediately in the English, but in the Greek, Paul is saying, rather than these false teachers who teach while uneducated and call for malnourishment, you are to be a good servant who is educated and nourished in the good doctrine that you have been taught. That's the point he's trying to make. Friends, if you're trying to get nourished from anything else other than the word of God, you are going to be in a bad way. And friends, if you think that this is nourishment enough for the Christian, you're going to be in a really bad way. I'm good. I go to church. Hans talks for like, what, an hour? Oh, my gosh. Try that with your diet this week. Just suck a bunch of food down for an hour and then don't eat the rest of the week. See how that goes for you. Let me know. Won't be good. Be nourished. Then Paul calls them to stay away from things that are not in the good doctrine, here calling them worldly or irreverent and silly myths. And this is referencing back to chapter 1, where Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, he said this, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stay away from things, he's saying, that are unsure and secondary, things that promote speculation rather than love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, I've found over the years that people get so enamored by religious leaders that sit in the mystical unknown and throw out hyper-spiritual ideas. Friends, even in my own ministry, uh, the times I've seen people be drawn to what I'm saying is not when I'm talking about good doctrine or love or ecclesiology or, friends, even salvation. It's when I talk about the rapture or the mark of the beast. Ooh, let me listen in now. It's when we talk about things that are hyper-spiritual, that are speculation, gifts of the Spirit, this room would be packed. 
Salvation, ecclesiology, eh, I know those things. People get enamored so much so that they major on the minors and forget to major on the gospel, the word of God, and love for one another. And the same thing seemed to be happening in Ephesus. But rather than that, Paul calls Timothy to train in godliness. The word train and later training uh, that comes up next, he says, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And these words here come from the Greek word gymnazo, which is the source of our word gymnasium or gym. In the Greek mind, it pictured the kind of self-discipline that was required to be a great athlete, a pers persistent in hard work. But Paul is being specific. He's saying, don't train in self-denial or asceticism. Train instead in the good doctrine and for the purpose of godliness. Praise God, we know what he means here because he just told us at the end of chapter 3 in verse 16. He starts there and says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Amen? Friends, that's the, that's the gospel. Amen? Amen? All right, there we go. The godliness that Timothy is to train for is in the good doctrine of the undeniable gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. Friends, if you're a person who's like, my thing is apologetics, my thing is eschatology, my thing is the genealogies. Well, you'd be weird if that was you. But if that's your thing, why don't you put that aside for a while and become so well-versed in the gospel that when somebody says to you, hey, tell me your version of the gospel, you go, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. I'm like a lion about to jump on a piece of meat because I know it so well. Let me tell you what the gospel is. Forget the secondary issues for a while. Focus on that. When you get that down, then let's start moving to the secondary issues. The good doctrine of the undeniable gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's for the purpose, not just to be able to speak it or know it, but for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. Now, this is not going to be valuable to Timothy only in this life, as a good workout at the gym might be, but it will be valuable for eternity to come. Paul's point is that these false leaders are focused on the wrong things for the wrong reasons. And Timothy should stand in stark contrast to them because the energy that they might use for self-denial and to lift themselves up as hyper-spiritual leaders, Timothy was instead to use that time and energy to devote himself to God's word and the sanctification that would refine Timothy's character to a point where true godliness would be present and obvious like those qualities outlined in chapter 3. Paul is clear in our last verse this morning that this would not be easy. In fact, it would be difficult to stay true to the good doctrine under these circumstances. He aligns with Timothy and says, it is this for which we toil, strive, and some manuscripts you might see have present and why we suffer reproach. The Greek underneath speaks of hard work through difficulty, through taunting and accusation. And Timothy was to expect this as a good servant of Christ. Friends, I have to admit to you for a second that a few weeks ago, I sinned by adding something to Scripture, by not reading Scripture correctly. In the very, uh, very section of deacons, or excuse me, uh, prior to elders, I said that the job of an elder is a horrible job. And I want to admit to you that the reality is, is it's a weighty job. And sometimes it gets the best of us to the point uh, where we let it out on stage. But the reality is, is the section on elders says it is a noble task. The section on deacons says that it's a reward to be able to lead. And so, friends, I repent to you that I said that it was a horrible job. In no way, shape, or form do I want any of you to have that keep you quiet from bringing to us issues of concern or questions. We want to be available to you for that. Timothy was to expect hard times, and I should too, and sometimes the weight gets to me. Uh, but praise God, I think I'm growing and being able to carry that weight, and so are our other elders. So you can pray for us in that, that we can expect hard times and not be nervous or upset when they come. Amen? Friends, does it feel sometimes like serving Jesus 
Truly serving him as he commands is exhausting, like I felt a few weeks ago in that moment. It's exhausting, isn't it? Especially among this world right now. Well, friends, you're in good company with Paul and Timothy because Paul gives us a word of hope that even though Timothy can be assured that there's going to be toil and striving and even suffering reproach, he then tells him a word of hope that can greatly sustain us during these times of exhaustion and anguish. He says that we do this, we engage in this, we carry this weight because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is not a universalist statement. He's not saying he's going to save all people regardless of their belief in him. He's saying that he is the Savior of the cosmos. That's how big he is. And his salvation is effective or efficacious for those that believe. This is key to understanding the contrast between the false asceticism of these false leaders and the good servant that Timothy is striving to be. False doctrine is always centered upon us. Write that down. False doctrine is always centered on us. Upon our works, upon our sacrifice, upon our religious actions, upon our use of the sacraments, upon our emotions and needs, and upon how the Bible should benefit us. It's always based on us. False doctrine is always looking to the end result of our glorification. Now, in Christ, are we glorified? Amen. But good doctrine, true doctrine, is always centered upon God and his glory. God-centered doctrine, not men-centered doctrine. This morning, uh, Seth and Danielle and I had a good conversation. We were talking about a song that we've played many times, but I, I came to them. I've been meaning to do it for a while. I said, hey, guys, there's this song that has this line that says, you wouldn't have heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. I said, what do you think of that line? They said, oh, yeah, that's not good theology. And I said, I agree. So we pulled it today. Because we don't want to serve a man-centered doctrine in this church. We want to glorify Christ. The end to which we toil and strive, Paul says, is not us being glorified. It's not us being comfortable. It's not earthly hope just for earthly hope's sake. There are entire ministries that have been started just on the word hope but on the hope that is set upon the living God. The Savior who came to die so that members of all nations might have access to reconciliation with the Father, and those that are truly reconciled are those for whom the death and resurrection of Christ was effective and complete. Paul gives this name and title to Jesus because, unlike the pagan gods who are non-existent as if they are already dead, Jesus is the one who has died and resurrected and is living right now. And Jesus is interceding on our behalf and is going to come again to bring the fullness of salvation to his elect. The godliness that we are each to strive for is not some self-made religion that twists good and evil and promotes false doctrine as if it's actually God's word. It is based on the gospel alone. And this gospel begins with the bad news that we as humanity have been twisting God's rule and truth from the beginning, attempting to make ourselves the authority. But in spite of this, God is so merciful and gracious that he provided a way through the work of his son Jesus on the cross to take on the wrath that we deserved so that we might be forgiven and seen as righteous. And Jesus then proved that this was successful and showed his victory over sin, death, and hell and all the deceitful lies of the enemy by rising again as a living being raised immortal to the heavenly realm who currently rules over his people by his Holy Spirit and is sovereign over this world. Friends, today he is calling you and I and the rest of the world to repent from our sin and our desire to usurp his throne and authority and instead turn to him in submission and give our lives over to him so that he might be our Savior and Lord. If you want to do that today and you haven't done that before, I would love to talk with you. I'll be out in the foyer there. If you want to talk with one of the elders that's wearing a mask, uh, Ryan is right here. He'd be happy to talk with you. We would love to talk with you about what it is to walk in the gospel. Friends, this gospel and the hope that it provides to us as broken, repentant sinners, that we are saved and that the Lord will come again to finalize that redemption, this gospel is our focus and our commission. 
And it's in studying this one true gospel and in understanding and living out the entirety of the story of God and his word that we will be trained to be like Christ. And in this, the proclamation and the action, we will draw people to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Focus on the gospel. Don't get distracted with self-made, man-made, or mob-made religion. Know the difference between false asceticism and true godliness and stand firm in the truth. Now, I know it's late, but let me finish with one other point of application. I want to ask you the question, when it comes to following someone, do you follow because of tradition or charisma or position? Do you follow because of their proximity to you in friendship or similarity to you in your own views and opinions? Or do you follow because that person is a person of character that to the best of their ability tries to stick to the word of God and is working towards godliness? In my time as a Christian, I've seen so many betrayed by their willingness to continue following or stay in friendship with someone who is showing blatantly by their actions a lack of character and a hypocrisy toward the word of God. And likewise, I've seen so many turn away from following godly men and women because of an unhealthy expectation that godly leaders will be perfect and never make a mistake or that godly leaders will always think like that person does. I hope that, at least within our elders and deacons, that we are people that constantly point you to the true gospel of Christ and that when we make mistakes or lead you wrongly, we are able to repent and apologize and be met with grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We are trying to answer the call to godliness and to stay firmly set on the word of God and the gospel that it proclaims. Friends, who do you follow and listen to, and why do you follow them? Is it because they display a godly and fruitful life based on a character formed in Christ's image, or is it something else? Like Timothy, we need to examine the state of our conscience and the sincerity of our submission to the rule of Christ in our life, our reliance upon the word of God and the hope of the work of the living God in the midst of our lives. If we bring ourselves into the discipline of the word of God rather than man-made religion and man-centered righteousness, we will be good servants, guiding one another in true doctrine and faith. And in the midst of all the sadness in the world, we can set our hope upon the living God who is and will be our Savior. Amen? May the church have ears to hear what the Lord is speaking to you today.